Argument first this morning, number 895961, Robert Lacey Parker versus Richard L. Duggar. Mr. Link. Thank you, Mr. Chief Justice. May it please the Court. There are four issues before the Court in our briefs. If we don't get to talk about all of them, we will rely upon the arguments that are in the briefs. The first issue involves the death penalty, the death sentence that was imposed. Uh, Mr. Parker was charged with three counts of first-degree murder in Jacksonville in Florida. Uh, the jury at his trial found him guilty as charged of two of the three counts of first-degree murder. After receiving additional mitigating evidence in a penalty phase trial, they recommended life sentences for both murders. They filled out a specific verdict form in which they found that mitigating circumstances outweighed aggravating circumstances. <clears throat> the trial judge overruled their recommendation as to one of the murders and sentenced Mr. Parker to death. Uh, he found that there were six aggravating circumstances, no mitigating circumstances, uh, despite the jury finding that mitigation outweighed aggravation and despite uncontroverted mitigating evidence that was in the record. Uh, the Florida Supreme Court, he stated that there were no mitigating circumstances that outweighed the aggravating circumstances. Well, that doesn't mean there aren't, isn't it, there aren't any mitigating circumstances. The trial court judge and the Florida Supreme Court so found that he's found that there were no mitigating circumstances. The, uh, well, what the, but what did the, the trial judge said there are no mitigating circumstances that outweigh the aggravating? Yes, sir. And he found no mitigating circumstances at all in his sentencing order. Uh, the sentencing order tracks the statutory mitigating circumstances under Florida law. There are seven of them. The trial court judge, however, during <coughs> argument, excuse me, during the penalty phase trial, provided the jury with an instruction that there were additional mitigating circumstances. That is, he told the jury that they could consider uh, any aspect of the defendant's character or record or any other aspect of or circumstances of the offense. Well, do you think the, the, the trial judge didn't consider all the evidence? I thought the trial judge expressly found that all the evidence was considered. The trial court I mean, judge... It, it, it would appear from the language used by the trial judge that indeed all this other mitigating evidence was, was received, it was considered, it was weighed, but not found to outweigh the aggravating circumstances. I don't think we could say that because of the fact that he went through the statutory mitigating circumstances and discussed them at great length and made absolutely no mention of the mitigating circumstances, even though he had instructed the jury on mitigating circumstances as uh, as an eighth mitigate statutory mitigating circumstance. Well, didn't he just instruct the jury that they could find these were mitigating circumstances, not that they had to? Yes, sir. That is correct. But he made no mention of any analysis of those mitigating circumstances in his sentencing order, uh, while he did as to the statutory mitigators. And the Florida Supreme Court's analysis, uh, such as it was, was that there were no mitigating circumstances found by the trial court judge. That was the Florida Supreme Court's interpretation of the trial judge's order. And uh, that is, was also the United States District Court judge's interpretation of the trial judge's order. That's what the Florida Supreme Court said. He found no mitigating circumstances. I think that's uh, pretty much dispositive as to uh, what occurred there. Well, under, under Florida law, he's, he's um, required to, to weigh the statutory mitigating circumstances against aggravating, as I understand it. Is that correct? Yes, sir. Is he required to weigh non-statutory mitigating circumstances oh, yes. against the aggravating circumstances? Yes, Your Honor, he, he is. Uh, however, at the time that this case was decided by the Florida Supreme Court, uh, as the Florida Supreme Court later said, they were not requiring state court judges or juries to consider non-statutory mitigating circumstances. They were using a mere presentation standard, which meant that as long as we let them hear about it, uh, there's no problem. They don't have to really consider it. Uh, after this court's decision in Hitchcock in 1987, uh, the Florida Supreme Court has acted to correct that problem. 
Well, but may I interrupt you, Mr. Link? You said that, in, in, in answer to Justice Souter's question, that Florida law required a weighing of non-statutory mitigating circumstances against aggravating circumstances. Now, the statute has, since 1985, required that. But at the time of this trial, it required just the opposite, didn't it? It merely required that the statutory mitigating circumstances be weighed. Uh, I stand corrected. The, uh, the statute did not require it. Uh, the law required it as interpreted under, under Lockett. Under Lockett. But the Florida statute, one just reading the Florida statute and not paying attention to Lockett, might not have done that way. Yes, sir. That is, that is correct. The issue as to the death sentence in this case is whether the standards used by the Florida Supreme Court to approve jury overrides are subject to Eighth Amendment review. Now, the state's position is and has been that once an override is affirmed by the Florida Supreme Court, that becomes a matter of state law and that it is insulated from federal review. That's the be-all and end-all. Uh, our position is that the state cannot develop a constitutional procedure to safeguard against the arbitrary application of the death penalty and then refuse to use it in an individual case. Uh, Even though it didn't have to develop it in the first place? Yes, sir. <clears throat> in other words, just because they did not have to give a jury recommendation any weight at all, uh, once, the <clears throat> once it is established, that is, they have established a constitutional procedure, which this Court has approved. Uh, when you say they've established a constitutional procedure, what do you mean by a constitutional procedure? One that is permitted by the Constitution or one that's required by the, con by the Federal Constitution? I would say uh, a constitutional procedure in death penalty parlance is one that has been approved by this court. Well, but you don't answer my question. I asked you whether you mean required or permitted by the Constitution. It is, uh, we do not say that it is required. It is permitted by the Constitution. Yes, sir. But once the state establishes that procedure, they have to follow it. In other words, they can't develop one set of rules for everybody else in jury overrides and distinguish against Robert Parker. Well, and what, what's your basis for, what is the constitutional basis for that statement? That is exactly what uh, this court found in Godfrey versus Georgia. We feel that that is exactly the principle that Godfrey stands for. In other words, once the state establishes a constitutional uh, or a construction of a standard for imposing the death penalty, they cannot then refuse to apply it in an individual case. That's what happened in Godfrey versus Georgia. The state had uh, developed a constitutional construction of a statutory aggravating circumstance. But in Godfrey's case, they did not utilize that statutory construction, uh, <clears throat> that constitutional construction, in judging his case. And that was the error that uh, allowed, permitted the arbitrary application of the death penalty in that instance. Uh, so we feel that that is exactly what happened here. Uh, the Tedder standard <coughs> excuse me, under Florida law is that a trial judge must give a jury recommendation great weight and can overrule it only if the facts suggesting a sentence of death are so clear and convincing that virtually no reasonable person could differ. Well, didn't both the uh, trial court and the Florida Supreme Court in this case find or conclude that no reasonable person could have failed to impose the death sentence in this case? Yes, Your Honor. But the Florida Supreme Court did not apply their construction or standard of review for reviewing overrides in this case. Their standard for reviewing overrides is the reasonable basis test, uh, which was developed in the case of Malloy, Richardson, and numerous other cases uh, cited in the briefs. The reasonable basis test for reviewing jury overrides requires a, the appellate court to review the record and examine the record, even if the judge finds no mitigating circumstances, to see if there are any factors that could have formed a reasonable basis for the jury's recommendation. There is no presumption that death is appropriate, even if uh, the judge finds numerous aggravating factors and no mitigating factors. When there's a life recommendation, there's no presumption that death is appropriate. The job of the appellate court, according to Florida Supreme Court decisions, is to look for a reasonable basis for the recommendation. If there is one, then the life recommendation should stand. Uh, this is the standard that was not applied here. You're, in, in essence, asking us to review that factual determination of the, of the Supreme Court of the state. No, Your Honor, we're not. 
Why? Uh, we are asking this court to require the Florida Supreme Court to apply that standard, not asking this court to second guess it or to say that. Well, uh, we, we can't tell that they haven't applied it without without entering into the factual inquiry and and concluding that they were wrong. I mean, you're telling us that there's no basis in the record for for their conclusion, right? And that therefore they couldn't have been acting uh, the way they're supposed to. No, sir, because the, uh, the court told us what it did here. They told us, in the opinion, that they did not use a reasonable basis test. They told us what the basis of affirming the override was. Their entire discussion relating to the override was that the trial court found no mitigating circumstances to balance against the aggravating circumstances, of which four were properly applied. In light of these findings, the facts suggesting a sentence of death are so clear and convincing that virtually no reasonable person could differ. Uh, they based their entire decision in this case on the fact that the trial judge found no mitigating circumstances. That's it. They didn't go beyond that. There was no reasonable basis analysis performed in this case. They, we know that because they tell us. They tell us right in the body of the opinion what they based their decision on. And it is a basis that was virtually unprecedented, and it certainly is contrary to what they've done in virtually every other case uh, involving jury overrides. Mr. So, Mr. Link, how, how do you distinguish the claim you're making from the claim that the capital defendant in Lewis against Jeffers last term made, claiming that the Arizona Supreme Court had not consistently applied its own capital sentencing decisions? And we, we rejected that claim. We said that's not a matter of federal law. In, yes, sir, thank you. In, in the Lewis versus Jeffers case, it involved a standard of review that was constitutional on its face, and the state court said that it applied that standard within the body of its opinion. The mere fact that this court might disagree with the application of that standard uh, is not a matter of federal law, and we would agree with that decision. The situation here is that the court, that is the Florida Supreme Court, has created a standard for reviewing jury overrides, but did not apply it in this case. They don't say they applied it. In other words, if they said, we have performed a reasonable basis analysis, we have examined the record, we have found no reasonable basis for determining that the jury, that there was a, no reasonable basis for the jury override, if that was what they found in the body of the opinion, then we would be in the Lewis versus Jeffers category. Uh, we are not. We are more, in, we are in the Godfrey versus Georgia category, where the court has a standard, but refuses to apply it to this case. Mr. Link, isn't the, isn't the portion of the standard that you <clears throat> claim they didn't apply, the standard that requires them to make some kind of an independent review of the record to determine whether they believe there are mitigating circumstances? Yes, Your Honor. So if they had said uh, not merely that the trial court found none, but had said, we have independently reviewed the record and we find no basis for concluding that mitigating circumstances were present, you would not have an argument. That is correct. We would be, the only argument we would have would be that there would be the Jackson versus Virginia rational prior effect uh, argument that was presented in Lewis versus Jeffers. Yes, sir. Are, are we entitled to assume that the Florida court followed its own law, even though it did not expressly say so? I think we have to assume they did not, where in this case, they said they did not. They told us, they tell us the basis for their decision. Well, they didn't tell us that they did not do it. They simply spoke of the appropriateness of what the trial court did, and they didn't specifically say, we have gone through this independent analysis. It's silence on their part, isn't it, rather than a confession of, of error? I don't believe so, because they say, in light of these findings, referring to the trial court's findings. Mr. Link, you're, you're quoting from page uh, 71 of the uh, joint appendix, but if you look on page 70, the Florida Supreme Court, before saying we, uh, uh, the, the trial court found no mitigating circumstances uh, in light of these findings, uh, we think it's correct, on page 70, the first full paragraph, the court says, in addition to considering all other issues raised on appeal, we have conducted an independent review of the record on trial and find no reason to award a new trial. Yes, sir. That, that Apparently the, they did conduct an independent review of the record. They, yes, they sir. have said that. Yes, sir. They did do that in reference to uh, any issues to award a new trial. That was as to the guilt phase. 
they present no discussion or no indication that they have evaluated the record to see if there is any there are any mitigating circumstances. You think that, that does not phase. go to the to the sentencing phase? That statement. Yes, sir. There's nothing in the opinion that says that it goes to the sentencing phase. It simply says, uh, accordingly, after having done this review, the convictions are affirmed. May I ask you, Mr. Link, if the Florida Supreme Court practice changed at all in the period right after 1984 and 1985 and what they did in these cases? Yes, Your Honor, uh, it did. Uh, the Florida Supreme Court recognized that its application of the Tedder standard was, uh, I describe it as aberrational, and I think they recognized it as, just, as being just that during 1984 and 1985. They were affirming uh, overrides at a rate of 73% during that time. Uh, the following years, uh, the affirmance rate has been in the vicinity of 20%. But not just on statistics in view of their legal approach. Is it not correct that prior to this, uh, the change in time, they were not relying at all on non-mitigating, uh, uh, non-statutory mitigating circumstances in, in reviewing overrides, whereas after that period, they did it rather regularly? I think for any, every general principle one can say about the Florida Supreme Court, one can find exceptions. And I, I think that there are a number of cases where the Florida Supreme Court did rely on non-statutory mitigating circumstances uh, prior to uh, 1984 and 1985. Uh, however, uh, the court le- subsequently admitted that they were not giving uh, consideration necessarily to non-statutory mitigation in the case of Downs versus Duggar, which is cited in the brief. So during this time frame, uh, it was certainly a skewed type of analysis that was being performed by the Florida Supreme Court. It seemed that they occasionally did give weight to non-statutory mitigating circumstances, and in other instances did not. Uh, For example, we can find in uh, uh, prior Florida precedent authority for the propositions that virtually all of the uh, non-statutory mitigating evidence that was present in this case was in other cases, a sufficient basis for a reasonable, a sufficiently reasonable basis for a jury life recommendation. Uh, intoxication was recognized as a non-statutory mitigating factor that could support a jury life recommendation uh, before this case and after this case. Uh, sentences of co-defendants was recognized. Yes, sir. How, how often are juries, jury recommendations overridden in Florida? How, what's, the, what's the history down there? You said there's been a change in the percentage, but how, how often do the jury recommendations of, of uh, life get overridden? They get overridden. Uh, I think it depends on goes from jurisdiction to jurisdiction, but uh, with some frequency, about one third of the uh, death sentences imposed in Florida have been jury overrides. The uh, vast majority have been set aside by the Florida Supreme Court using the reasonable basis analysis. I see. You make some point in your brief about the same judge was overwritten a number. Uh, is it, he's overridden a number of jury verdicts. Is that correct? Uh, yes, sir. Uh, this this court has already reviewed uh, two prior overrides by this same judge. As a matter of fact, in Barkley and Daubert versus Florida. But not, and Spaziano too, or was it? Uh, Spaziano was uh, was not this judge. No, sir. Our contention, very briefly there, is that the Florida Supreme Court did, in this case, what Godfrey says that it can't do. The state can't develop a procedure that safeguards against arbitrary application of the death penalty, then refuse to follow it. Uh, Our contention, very simply, is that Robert Parker is entitled to the same procedural protections that, as other defendants in jury override cases, and he didn't get it in this case. Uh, We're simply asking, we're not asking this court to second-guess the Florida Supreme Court. There is no necessity for this court to substitute your judgment for theirs. We know, based on the opinion, that they didn't do what they say they do in other cases. Uh, we're, not, we're asking the court to send this case back to the Florida Supreme Court. So oh, is this an Eighth Amendment question or equal protection? I think the, uh, the question somewhat melds here when uh, one talks about in terms of Eighth Amendment arbitrariness, but it is the, uh, the aberrational application or failure to apply that standard that I think results in the, in the arbitrariness in this case. The, the conclusion of the Godfrey Court, that was where the court in Georgia appeared not to follow its rule that uh, the victim had to be tortured or, or severely abused. 
but the conclusion of the Georgia court was, or the Supreme Court, was thus the validity of the petitioner's death sentence turns on whether, in light of the facts and circumstances of the murders, the Georgia Supreme Court can be said to have applied a constitutional construction of the phrase. Then it quotes the phrase. And we conclude the answer must be no. I, I, I don't see how that supports your view that uh, we, we can parse the record here to determine whether or not state law was properly applied. The whole conclusion of Godfrey is there was an unconstitutional construction of the phrase. Yes, Your Honor. Uh, it was because the, the phrase on its face was unconstitutional. It, as construed by the state Supreme Court, it was constitutional. Uh, I think that if one looks at the Tedder standard, it in fact is unconstitutional on its face. That is, the standard of facts suggesting a sentence of death must be so clear and convincing that no reasonable person could differ. That could mean on its face virtually anything. Uh, it is a sort of stand back and react type of test that this court condemned in Maynard versus Cartwright. Well, didn't we kind of approve it in the Spaziano? When this court, I don't think so. Uh, and maybe I'm wrong, but I don't think so. Uh, this court cited the Richardson case, which t talks about the way the Supreme Court reviews uh, and has construed the Tedder standard. And we feel that the Richardson uh, construction is a constitutional construction of the Tedder standard. Uh, in other words, as construed by the Florida Supreme Court, their reasonable basis analysis is a constitutional construction. Well, I thought in Spaziano we held that the Tedder standard was constitutional. My understanding was that it, it was constitutional as applied by, as construed by the Florida Supreme Court. The Tedder standard on its face doesn't do anything to channel discretion. Uh, it is, uh, appears to be a gut reaction type of test where one looks at everything, uh, the overall facts and circumstances, and says, we don't like it, let's kill him. Uh, that's what, uh, it's the open-ended, uh, unchanneled discretion that this court said it was improper in Furman and Maynard in virtually every case since then. Uh, with a, we have a, the constitutional construction of the Tedder standard is the reasonable basis analysis that requires some analysis of mitigating circumstances uh, and channels the discretion. The Tedder standard on its face also makes no allowance for mitigating circumstances, in fact. It simply states that the fact suggesting a sentence of death must be so clear and convincing that no reasonable person could differ is this, uh, without mitigation. Is, is this your strongest argument, you think? Uh, but you have another one, I suppose. Yes, sir. We have uh, several others. <clears throat> there were jury instructions in this case uh, that uh, the judge was instructed the jury that they could find the defendant guilty under one of two theories, that is, felony murder or premeditated murder, the underlying felony being robbery. The evidence of robbery was held to be insufficient uh, as a matter of law by the Florida Supreme Court subsequently. So the jury was instructed on a theory of liability that was not supported by the evidence. But not only were they instructed on a theory of liability that was not supported by the evidence, they were also told that Mr. Parker's defense to that theory of liability, which was supported by the evidence, uh, was not a defense at all. Uh, Mr. Parker testified on his own behalf and <clears throat> explained to the jury that he was present at the scene of the Shepherd homicide, but that he did not participate voluntarily, that, the, uh, that he was threatened by Tommy Groover, who was armed, and he was not, and his wife had been threatened, and that explained his presence there. Duress was the defense to the Shepherd homicide. The trial court judge instructed the jury that duress was not a defense to murder, period. This allowed the state to argue that Robert Parker was guilty even by his own testimony, even if his own testimony was true. Uh, the evidence that had been presented of fear and coercion was essentially uh, became incriminating and not exculpatory. Constitutional principle here? The constitutional principle is that it denies due process to uh, prevent a man from presenting his defense. In other words, every man has a right to be heard, and Mr. Parker was not heard. He was not given the right to be heard in this case. His defense was taken away from him. The judge essentially directed a verdict of guilt by telling the jury his defense wasn't a defense. So this is a guilt or innocence argument? Yes, sir. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Your contention is that, uh, that under the state law, uh, 
is coercion or duress is a defense to uh, to homicide. It is a defense to felony murder. It is a defense to felony murder. Yes, Your Honor. It is a defense to the underlying felony, whereas a defense to the underlying felony. It's well established. Yes, I understood that to mean that if, that if you are coerced into a bank robbery, into participating in a bank robbery, and one of the other participants uh, kills a, a bank guard, uh, duress is a defense. But is there any, any state case that says if you're the one that kills the bank guard? No, sir. And that is, but Your Honor's, Your Honor's statement of yeah. facts is exactly what we have here. That is precisely what we have here. The evidence is undisputed that Robert Parker killed no one. Uh, he was an aider and a better uh, at all times, and that was the evidence that was presented at trial. Uh, the basis of his liability in <coughs> the Shepard murder was based on the taking of a necklace and ring from uh, the Shepard girl. An aider, an aider or better in the murder itself, not just in the bank robbery, though, not just, not just in the robbery. He was yes. aiding and abetting in the murder. I mean, that was the crime that, uh, that, that he walked into, wasn't it? It wasn't that he participated because of coercion in a bank robbery and then somebody happened to get killed. He didn't pull the trigger, but he was a participant in the, in the act of killing someone. The evidence under his own testimony was that he was present, uh, did nothing to assist in the murder, but uh, was told to take the ring and necklace afterwards. So under those circumstances, the jury very well could have considered that he was an involuntary participant in the robbery. Uh, so we think that would fit within uh, the, the ambit of the court's analogy there. Leaving aside the question whether he was a voluntary participant or not, as I understand it, you're also making the claim, based on the on the court's own the trial court's own finding, um, there are the I'm sorry, the appellate court's own finding, there was insufficient evidence uh, from which uh, a robbery could have been found. Is that correct? Yes, Your Honor. All right. Now, as I understand it, I, I went to the appendix, and as I understand it, sufficiency of the evidence was raised. Uh, prior to the submission of the case to the jury, and I'll, I'll accept your position on that. Uh, was this issue raised on the first habeas? On the, Your Honor, means on, on the direct appeal to the Florida Supreme Court? Well, I, I, didn't, I didn't mean that, but I will ask Sorry. that too. Uh, as to the direct appeal, the issue was raised in response to the Florida Supreme Court's finding that the evidence to support the robbery aggravating circumstance was insufficient. It was raised. That, that's when you move for rehearing. That's how you raise yes. that. Now, on yes. first habeas, was it raised? In state court, no, sir. It was not. What then is your answer to the question that you have waived it for collateral review? The answer is that we felt that we had, ra that we had raised it in both the trial court and in the state Supreme Court uh, during the direct appeal, and that the, there was no point, and in fact we would be precluded from raising it in state post-conviction proceedings. Uh, there is uh, a rule of Florida law that if you raise something in state post-conviction uh, that has been raised in the trial court, uh, it's automatically uh, dismissed. It's, it's not proper. It's not valid. So, so you depend on Florida procedure then? Yes, sir. Okay. Uh, and I'd like to reserve the remaining time for rebuttal. Very well, Mr. Link. Uh, Ms. Nurkowski, we'll hear from you. Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the court. There were five issues. We have four issues present before the court today. Um, most of the time was spent with regard to the first issue, but I would like to first address the second issue, which was the latter issue that was just brought to the court's attention, with regard to whether, in fact, Mr. Link and Mr. Parker, in particular, preserve the claim for which he now asserts uh, that uh, review should be granted or review should be considered. First and foremost, with regard to the sufficiency of the evidence, there were 22 issues raised on direct appeal two of which impact with regard to this particular claim, one of which was had to do with the guilt portion of the trial. And if you recall, in the Fax's case, I have to digress for a moment, there were three murders. The first murder um, was charged, premeditated murder, but there was also a charge of, well, no, not a charge, but the evidence went to a kidnapping. And Mr. Link, on direct appeal, argued that the evidence was insufficient with regard to the Paget murder, to show the underlying felony of kidnapping. There was no, and I repeat, there was no argument presented on direct appeal with regard to the sufficiency of the evidence to raise the guilt as to the Nancy Shepard murder, which was the underlying felony of robbery. 
So Robert, did they raise it at the trial court? Yes, they did. Okay. They, there were arguments not so much as to the sufficiency. It was more to the idea that the, uh, an instruction, there should not be an instruction yeah. with regard to that. It wasn't per se the underlying felony. Um, the second impacted issue on this, which brings us to the attention of the robbery, had to do with the penalty phase. At the penalty phase, Mr. Link argued that the death penalty override was improper because an aggravating factor had been improperly found, to wit, that the murder occurred during the course of the robbery. And that's how the robbery became an issue before the Florida Supreme Court. The Florida Supreme Court, in resolving this claim, found that, yes, indeed, it concurred that the aggravating factor was not appropriate. And I would submit to the Court a reading of the Florida Supreme Court's opinion reflects that it was not because the robbery was not proven, but rather there was not a sufficient nexus for that underlying felony to support the aggravating factor. In Florida, with regard to finding aggravating factors, in particular the underlying felony, the Florida Supreme Court has indicated that you have to have a nexus between a robbery that occurs and applying that aggravating factor to the case. I would submit to you that technically robbery, there was robbery in this case, it was sufficient to go to the jury with regard to an alternative theory. In fact, though, the record also reflects that the state prosecuted on premeditated murder and very little reliance was made with regard to the underlying felony of robbery for the Nancy Shepard murder. The first time this claim came up, and it was not raised in terms of Stromberg, but rather as to sufficiency of the evidence, is in a rehearing petition after the Florida Supreme Court found and concurred that the aggravating factor was not appropriate. And that argument now became a greater argument that, in fact, the sufficiency of the evidence was not there, therefore a theory of liability for which the defendant may have been convicted was not supported by the record. I would submit to you first and foremost that the opinion does not support that, but more importantly, raising something for the first time before the Florida Supreme Court on rehearing does not preserve nor raise fairly the issue before the state highest court. The record also reflects that collaterally this issue was not renewed or raised to make sure it had been preserved. It was not raised on appeal from the denial of uh, state court trial relief collaterally. And the first time it again arose was when the first habeas corpus petition was filed in federal court and it was put in the posture of sufficiency of the evidence. The federal district court in reviewing this claim found that there may have been confusion with regard to the 11th Circuit as to how it aired or looked at um, issues that were preserved via a rehearing petition before an appellate court on direct appeal and came down on the side that the issue was not preserved. The court did make some discussion with regard to Stromberg and why, in fact, even if we got to the issue, it was not a violation, uh, any constitutional violation with regard to Mr. Parker. The state stands before this court as the 11th Circuit found that this particular claim was procedurally barred because the highest state court had not aired it. And they found that this claim was different. The postulates came... M- Mr. Carter, when you say aired it, you mean c- considered it? Yes, uh, yes. I, should, I guess I should use a better word than that. Not air, E-R. Um, the uh, 11th Circuit concluded that, in fact, that the case was, uh, the issue was procedurally barred because, in fact, under Harris versus Reed, three members of this court found that when a state court has not been fairly given an opportunity to look at a claim, that that issue, can, you can't impose a plain statement of the court if they don't have an opportunity. You can't presume they're going to know how they're going to rule on this claim. If Harris versus Reed concerns claims that are fairly presented to the court and there's ambiguity with regard to whether an appellate court has applied procedural bar or has, in fact, addressed the merits. Would the Florida court uh, have been entitled in its discretion to hear this claim on rehearing? If it had found that there was sufficient merit to uh, pique its interest, yes, it could have. And that is the whole purpose of what what, uh, the Rule 9.330 is all about. Like any court that has the ability to rehear, the state would submit that when you tender an argument, Every appellate court would be held hostage if a defendant could, in fact, raise new claims on rehearing that had not been fairly and properly raised on direct appeal. They would always be in a posture of being blindsided by those claims if the court just summarily said denied. And, in fact, I believe, and I would submit to you that the court rule, which is... Well, suppose the court just says denied for failure to... uh, 
because of failure to comply with our rules, that the claim must be presented. That could have been done, and I, in a perfect world, I would be very happy if that had occurred. But the point of the matter is, well, you say held hostage. Uh, that's all they need to add. That's true, but I think that as arguments have been presented to this court with regard to uh, a case that was just except the argument hasn't been prepared, but the lower court uh, discussed it, uh, that to require a court to say that might necessarily uh, require a, a detailed opinion with regard to how many justices might view that particular claim. It all might not be on the same basis. And in fact, we have a routine procedure, and most, most rehearing uh, courts that have rehearing uh, procedures or have uh, the ability to file rehearings assume that if there's something that has piqued the court's interest, they will address it and either clarify it, modify it. And in fact, our rehearing um, rule is a rule that says you cannot argue something, you can't argue something anew, you can't raise things that have been already argued, and it's to um, allow for any misapprehension or misapplication of law. I would submit to you that the argument that has been preserved or allegedly preserved did not fall into that category and were improper with regard to the filing of rehearing. The state's argument is that this claim has never fairly been presented to a state court, and certainly uh, we should not be bound by Harris versus Reed's plain statement. And in fact, that the Eleventh Circuit was correct in making that analysis that um, that issue is not before the court. With regard to the first issue and the jury override, that took place. As I understood the issue before the court, it was whether the left open question in Spaziano was before this court. What standard should be applied in individual cases? Should it be an analysis that has been discussed by this court with regard to Walton and uh, Lewis versus Jeffers uh, and, God, in fact, Godfrey versus uh, Georgia? Or, in fact, is there an independent state? basis because tether is a state standard and therefore there is nothing beyond a determination that uh, the standard is appropriate, the court does routinely apply it. May I ask you a couple of preliminary questions on this because I have the feeling as I read through the papers that all the reference to tether just confuses the issue and that what the district court found in this case was Hitchcock error, that there were non-statutory mitigating circumstances that the record does not indicate the trial judge even considered. Now, would you agree there are non-statutory mitigating circumstances established by the evidence here? I would say there were non-statutory evidence submitted, whether it was established Well, for example, the district court relied on the fact that the defendant was intoxicated at the time of the offense and that the Florida court has repeatedly said that's a non-statutory mitigating circumstance. Do you think that was not established by the evidence? I don't believe that there was sufficient evidence to show he was intoxicated. There was evidence during the course of this record to reflect that they had ingested drugs and had been drinking or had drinks during the day. There was no evidence that he was intoxicated, did not appreciate what he was So you would view the trial judge as having rejected as a matter of fact the evidence that he was intoxicated? Based on this particular record, that is correct. And how about the second non-statutory mitigating circumstance the district judge relied on, namely the disparity in the sentencing? Well, in fact, the disparity of sentencing is a very good point because, in fact, the person, who, the uh, Elaine Parker, who was his ex-wife, uh, turned witness um, uh, and got second-degree murder. Billy Long, who actually did the shooting and who was impugned to do the shooting by both uh, Parker and, in fact, Tommy Groover, got a life sentence. Uh, Mr. Groover, who was part and parcel to this drug uh, collection day, with, which resulted in three deaths, got the death penalty for the Paget murder and the Jody Dalton murder and got life for the Nancy Shepard murder. He, in fact, did not participate in the Nancy Shepard murder to the extent that uh, Mr. Parker did, nor... Well, without getting into the detail, you then agree with the district judge in this case that the petitioner's accomplices and co-defendants received lesser sentences for their parts in the Shepard murder. I am suggesting that there were other sentences, there was other sentences but other than death given. if that's true, and if, as he says, by citing a bunch of Florida cases, that is regarded as a non-statutory mitigating circumstance, how do we know the judge gave consideration to it or didn't give consideration? This trial judge was also the trial judge in the uh, Tommy Groover case and knew the facts and circumstances and the sentence well, of death imposed in those Are you cases. saying that it was not a non-statutory mitigating circumstance? I mean, there was no such non-statutory mitigating circumstance or that he took it into account and weighed it against the aggravating circumstance? The trial judge in this case, I think he took it into account and found that it was not a valid non-statutory mitigating circumstance based on the facts 
and Mr. Parker's participation in the Nancy Shepard murder. Because he doesn't explain any of that, does he? He, he does not explain, uh, he doesn't go into graphic detail. He, explains he doesn't say why. a word. He doesn't say a word about the non-statutory mitigating circumstances, does That's he? That's absolutely true, but he, in fact... And one of the questions, would you agree that if he did not give consideration to non-statutory mitigating circumstances, that he committed constitutional error under Lockett and Hitchcock? He, I would agree that if he, there was evidence that he did not do that, that would be so. Well, if, but there is no evidence in this uh, record. Who has the burden of establishing whether or not he gave consideration to these uh, uh, non-statutory circumstances that the district court found to have been established by the evidence? I think that the state has to come forward on appellate review before the Florida Supreme Court and make an assessment as to whether, in fact, he properly followed the law as it is applied in Florida. And they and interpreted, they said he had found no non no mitigating what circumstances. What they found was the trial no, no circumstance that needed to be balanced. Absolutely. But after that, what's important? But if there were any that needed to be balanced, if there were any, they had to be balanced, didn't they? They had to be balanced. But important as to what was quoted to the court right after the phrase about how um, there were four properly applied. In light of these findings of facts suggesting the sense of death are so clear and convincing that virtually no reasonable person could differ, they cite to Tedder versus State their own standard with regard to jury overrides. And then they say... And what, what does that establish? That, in fact, they were applying an appropriate standard. They were doing their analysis... Does that, that mean that they... That, that, that mean that they agreed there were non-statutory mitigating circumstances, but they were clearly outweighed? Or were they agreeing with what they said, that there were no such circumstances? They were making their independent determination because the next line says the jury override was proper... And the facts of this case clearly place it within the class of homicides for which the death penalty First has eight. been found appropriate. Spaziano versus Florida. I would submit to you that in perhaps um, uh, shortened language... They, they did just the same thing in Hitchcock against Duggar, didn't they? They thought that was proper, too. In, this, in the sense... But the, but, the, but the opinion, neither the opinion of the trial judge nor the opinion of the Supreme Court of Florida explains what weight, if any was given to the evidence of non-statutory mitigating circumstances. The, the ultimate conclusion is set forth, you're absolutely right. But is that sufficient? Yes, it is. I think they have, they have applied the standard that is set forth. And to, to reach that standard, you, this court in Spaziano had to review that which the Florida Supreme Court has done. And in fact, there's nothing in this case nor any other case since Spaziano to reflect that Spaziano was in fact wrong or that there's been any change with regard to the Florida Supreme Court's assessment of jury overrides. And in fact, the statistics that are being uh, presented in the uh, pleadings bear out what the state says more than what the defendant says, because in fact, the history of the Tedder standard as applied in Florida has been a very uh, careful one. It's one of the most difficult things for the state to sustain in the Florida Supreme Court is a jury override. In fact, less than 30% of the overrides that have gone before the court have been sustained. And I would submit to you that what is really being asked of the court today is for you to the make... The 30% figure wasn't true during the period 1982 to 1984. Right, that's absolutely correct. It was a higher number, but I think we have to remember what has occurred, occurred during that period of time. This court had just decided Spaziano. And to suggest that the court was not aware of what was occurring in Spaziano and also not probably holding cases back that were of that genre would be uh, misreading what courts do. And that is they may very well have those cases that are important to them and they're waiting for a decision to resolve it. Not all those cases were in fact affirmed. And, but I think we have to look at this through um, the period of time that is the existence of the Tedder Standard. And throughout the application of the Tedder Standard, it's been very difficult. And the Florida Supreme Court has not been uh, rubber stamping, in essence, a jury overrides. And in fact, uh, the statements that are suggested that the court has now made pronouncements that there is, we, are, we mean what we say, we intend what we mean with regard to to uh, Tedder was not a, uh, a reinvesting of a, a procedure in the Florida Supreme Court, but it was warning and fair warning to the trial courts of the state of Florida that we intend to abide and we will continue to abide by the Tedder standard. The state would submit that at best this court's decision in Jeff, uh, Lewis versus Jeffers controls and that uh, no relief should be forthcoming. The state is not willing at this point to absolutely give up that, in fact, Spaziano ended 
the inquiry and that there should not be a, there sh- should be some further inquiry to make on a, a case-by-case basis. That certainly is what the uh, federal district court judge May did. I ask you one other question? Yes, that, do you, can you reconcile the Court of Appeals statement in this case that the floor, the, the federal Court of Appeals statement, in their opinion, that referring to the Florida Supreme Court's opinion as saying that that court had concluded that the four statutory aggravating circumstances sufficiently outweighed the mitigating circumstances to justify the sentence. Do you think that's what the correct statement of the, what the Florida Supreme Court held? I think the Florida Supreme, yes, and I think the Florida Supreme Court had six statutory aggravating factors that was before it with regard to what the trial court found. They, they determined after consideration of this whole record that those, there were two statutory aggravating factors that were not appropriate. They then reviewed those, the, the, the availability of those aggravating factors based on the statutory and non-statutory mitigation that was tendered. This, and this is borne so out that, by the argument. Let, let me, let me be sure I understand because there are two quite different theories of what happened in the states. One is that they found no non-statutory mitigating circumstances, so obviously they would outweigh. Alternatively, they found that there were some non-statutory mitigating circumstances, but that they were outweighed by the aggravating circumstances. And the, the Court of Appeals seemed to say it was the latter, and I would read the, the Florida Supreme Court as saying it was the former. Mm-hmm. Which do you think is the correct I view think, of the record? Uh, I think that... They took into consideration both statutory and non-statutory. They did not speak to that, nor, but they're not required to speak to that. And we have to presume that they so follow the law. You presume that they found some non-statutory circumstance, mitigating circumstances, but found that they were outweighed by the statute. I the think aggravated. what they did was they considered what the statutory, non-statutory mitigating circumstances were tendered and that they did what their requisite determination as to what was presented and found. It did not rise to the level that satisfied that the aggra- the uh, mitigation outweighed the aggravation in this case. I don't think there has to be but a is that because finding. four outweighs is greater than zero or because four is greater than two? No, the numbers don't matter. The numbers do not matter but, is it, but I still can't understand from your answer whether you think there were no non-statutory mitigating circumstances found by the trial court or that they were found and found to be outweighed. I think what the, but again, you're asking me something that I can't tell you because you can't tell from it doesn't the record. specifically speak to it, but I can tell you, I can suggest to you that based on the instructions given, based on the evidence presented, we presume the trial court follows the law. He knew that evidence of non-statutory mitigating evidence was to be considered by the jury. He ins- he'd so instruct the jury. The Florida Supreme Court reviewed this record, found that he was correct, and we have to presume that they make an, a pro- proper analysis. We, and we're, they're not really under attack with regard to their analysis. But the bottom line is that, A, he's not required to list the non-statutory mitigating factors he may or may not have found. There is no requirement that the record disclose whether or not he considered. You Absolutely. Just presume but he does. we know, we, and, but the record requires, and the, 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 excuse me, the statutes, and the case law requires he consider it, and that's what we have, to, we have to be concerned with. Did he consider it? The fact that you and I may say yes in this particular case, we find this is a valid mitigating factor, is not for us to do. No, it's, it's not that you and I say yes or no. It's what the, the fact that the Florida Supreme Court said one thing and the court, Federal Court of Appeals said they said something quite different as a basis for reversing the district court. That's what troubles me. But I think they're, they're getting at the same thing. It's just that we have, it, uh, in many of these cases, it's not artfully presented with regard to exactly what the uh, factors were that were balanced, whether they were mitigating factors of a, a statutory nature. We have this, the, the statute basically requires you make written findings of those, and those are the more, more important because under the statute. But we cannot avoid, nor can, do we require, that... Um, uh, the state trial court list with particularity the non-statutory mitigating factors that are presented and that he finds. And I, but I think Hitchcock, Lockett require the consideration. It does not mandate that he finds those statutory Isn't mitigating Isn't it rather factors. strange when you read his opinion, the trial judge's opinion, he's in great detail about each one of the statutory mitigating circumstances, a great elaboration of what the fact is. It's the non-statutory, non-statutory doesn't say a word about it. 
That's absolutely it's a rather dramatic. But I concept. think that is indicative of the period of time we're talking about also. Which is a period when some judges didn't think they had to even look at the non-statutory. Now, what, what I was going to point to was the statute provided that you make written findings, and the emphasis was at that point in time on the statutory mitigating factors. But I don't think we can read any of these cases that are, in, and in particular, this particular case with regard to the override, that the trial court did not consider that was what that which was submitted to him, and I mean we're we're making this quantum leap from what in fact was presented, because there was a wealth of wealth of evidence that one might consider non-statutory mitigating factors. The jury was so instructed to that. The problem with this case is that we have a opinion by the trial court or an order by the trial court that does not fully explain what in fact. He considered, not that he had to find what he considered, but I would submit to you he is presumed to have followed the law. The state would urge, if there are no further questions, that the Eleventh Circuit's opinion be affirmed that it is correct with regard to the procedural bar claim as to the Stromberg issue, and that they were absolutely correct in applying Spaziano with regard to uh, whether the Florida Supreme Court in this particular case properly overrode uh, the jury's recommendation of life. The standard to be applied is properly set out by the Eleventh Circuit that we are not here, as the federal district court did, to reinvestigate and present our change or our view of how the facts come out, should come out, but rather to ascertain whether, in fact, the appellate court properly conducted its role. In this instance, I would say it has. We ask that you affirm. Thank you. Thank you, Ms. Nerkowski. Uh, Mr. Link, do you have rebuttal? Please, the court. <clears throat> the, uh, just so it's clear, the evidence of intoxication that was presented at the trial court level was uncontroverted, uh, and it came primarily from state witnesses who all said the defendant was high, flying, under the influence, drunk, stoned, what have you. So that was uncontroverted. He took LSD, PCP, and drank three or four cases of beer in a 12-hour period. So the evidence was pretty strong about intoxication. Yes, but the law doesn't require the judge to believe it. That is correct. However, the judge, uh, the law requires the judge to consider it, and there is no evidence that he did. Particularly, he knew enough to tell the jury about the non-statutory mitigating circumstances. He gave him instruction about it, but didn't include any language that he had considered any of those factors in his, uh, in his decision, even though he considered virtually all of the non-statutory <coughs> mitigating circumstances, even ones that were not argued or presented to the jury. Uh, I also wanted to correct one thing. Uh, Billy Long, the actual trigger man, the one who killed the shepherd girl, was given a plea bargain to second-degree murder. He's already been paroled. He, he was not given a life sentence. Thank you, Mr. Link. Uh, the case is submitted.